Women on Screen Out Loud is proudly supported by Deluxe Toronto. Deluxe is the leading post-production and visual effects provider to the world's top content creators. Welcome to Women on Screen Out Loud, giving a platform to women in the film industry who challenge, motivate, and inspire on all sides of the camera. We are your hosts, Lara Jean Korostecki and Jennifer Pogue. Women on Screen Out Loud was created as a platform to tell the stories that are essential to our Canadian landscape and the root of why we do what we do. In her essay, Understanding Past to Make Sense of Present, actress Gane Dio Horn takes us through the first perspective of what it meant for her to grow up as a Ganaweke Mohawk, her experience of the tragic 1990 Oka crisis, her life as an actress, and why she has decided to start telling her own stories. I'm choosing to talk about a strange and complicated relationship. My relationship with watching myself on screen and when it all started. The first time I saw myself on screen and in print wasn't in my 20s post-theater school training. No, it was recorded footage and a famous photograph of myself and my sister in the most traumatic and confusing event of both of our lives. I was four and my sister Winique was 14. She was on the ground in the arms of a Canadian soldier and in her arms was me. She had just been bayoneted in the chest by a soldier while protecting me, around supper time, September 26, 1990. I grew up seeing this image over and over. Every time there is an anniversary of the Oka crisis, this image, along with a few others, are flashed across the news screens. I heard there was even an enormous print of this up at the CBC and Montreal Gazette offices for some time. When I was 19, my dream came true, and I ended up on TV. The strangest thing about that experience was that it was a made-for-TV movie for CBC about the Oka crisis. I don't feel like explaining what the 1990 Oka crisis is. If you don't know, look it up, because you should. It's a part of Canadian history. So they were making a movie about it, and I was getting my first ACTRA union credit by being in it. Talk about major mindfuck, right? I played a woman I know named Susan and had in my contract 13 days on set, but did many more. It was pretty surreal, and at that point in my life, I hadn't understood what I really went through 15 years before. My PTSD only crept up and made its home inside me in my late 20s. I remember standing there, recreating moments from that summer, exactly where it all happened, the extras as soldiers closing in on us with guns. I was taking in so much, I'm surprised I didn't have a meltdown. I wouldn't agree to do that movie now. In my late 20s, I was struggling with a lot of things. A mentally, verbally, and emotionally abusive ex-boyfriend, anger, rage, ups and downs in my career, addiction, loneliness, name it, I was probably dealing with it. I had even tried to get a counselor in Gunawake, but was told there were crazier people than me that needed help and they didn't have enough funding for me. <laughs> I was fragile. I didn't understand what I was dealing with. Did I have mental health issues? Was I actually as crazy as my ex said I was? I was a cutter on and off since I was 14, and I have those scars on the back of my wrists. I see them every day, and makeup artists have to cover them up sometimes for work. One day, around the 25th anniversary of the Oka crisis, 
I did an interview for a radio show, and they played a clip of the interview they did with Wanique, my sister. In the clip, she had described a sound I made during the chaos of that evening in 1990. I had never heard her describe the moment that way before. She's been interviewed many times, and I've heard and read them, but something about this time hit me. I bawled on air after they played it. I said I never heard her say that. I imagined my 14-year-old sister doing everything in her power to protect her little four-year-old sister, me. I heard the pain and trauma in her voice as she described the moment. I think this is where my PTSD started to creep in and up into my life and say, hello, you can't tough everything out, girl. Then there's the moment where I knew I was really fucked. Again, the 25th anniversary, everyone is trying to get their piece of the anniversary pie. A documentary was made, which again, my sister was interviewed for. I was never asked because most people assume us children don't remember anything. I call bullshit on that. We remember, and I think it's about time people recognize that. So this documentary was made, and the night before it aired, the filmmaker texted my sister saying, just FYI, we got some other footage we added in. It may be a little triggering. They didn't reach out to me, telling me to be aware. There I am, sitting in my Parkdale apartment, and I load the dock up onto my TV. I start watching it, thinking, everything is fine. In a weird, sick, and twisted way, watching old footage of that time is like watching home movies for me. I know everyone involved. When Eek's interview comes up, again, she starts talking about this sound I made as a four-year-old. Then this clip comes up. And I'm watching my four-year-old self in a little blue coat, holding my sister's hand as we get pushed around by giant Canadian soldiers. And I hear the audio, and you can clearly hear my scream. The scream my sister kept describing that she had never heard before and hadn't heard since, but she knew it was a scream coming from a child that thought she was going to die. That was fucking it for me. Suddenly, I get a text from Monique saying, do not watch the documentary. I write back through tears. Too late. I couldn't breathe. I had a major anxiety attack for about five or six hours. Hearing your little self scream so clearly, watching yourself be pushed and shoved around by grown men, seeing the hatred spewed at you, your most traumatic event in your life play out on TV in front of you, knowing the entire country is most likely tuning in. It's fucked. It's fucking fucked. Monique was furious. She asked the filmmaker if they'd understood what they'd done. They didn't. They got their doc on TV. I understand. This is a very unique position to be in. An actress who happened to be a victim of a highly documented, extremely violent moment in Canadian history. Where's the handbook on how to deal? You just deal. There is no other option for me. This beautiful medium ended up causing my biggest breakdown. Not due to an issue as an actress, but as a human being and young Indigenous woman watching part of my own history unfold on television. A victim of ethics ignored when the filmmaker approached their documentary. The little girl in the blue raincoat wasn't some child in a far-off country. That is little me. Ganyeh Dio. Badass Tannis on Letterkenny, Dorothy on Supernatural, the ghost in Ghost BFF. I shouldn't have seen that without a warning. 
It's like a wound that is never totally going to close because people will bring this event up forever. I'm in the captain's chair now. I have the power and confidence to one day tell my own story. I'm taking baby steps. I love my job. I love TV. I love documentaries. I love film. I should thank this documentary filmmaker for lighting the fire under my ass to take charge of my story. And maybe one day they'll find the courage to apologize to me. Coming up, Gane Horn expands on her personal experience and what has fueled her quest to embrace the past in order to find her own storytelling voice in the present. Hi, I'm Lara Jean Korstecki, and I'm here with Dio Horn, and I want to thank you for coming in to Deluxe today. We also want to start by saying thank you for choosing to share your story with us on this platform. It was a real honor to read your words. And Okay, there feels like there is no good way to say this. Um, it's just really shitty. And we're really sorry that your family and the Mohawk people went through what you did during, before, and after Oka. Uh, I also want to acknowledge that this interview was really difficult to prepare for. Your essay is just, it's so present and open and raw, and I hope that you feel you have the space to elaborate or not on your experiences. Um, and to those listening, we looked up some links to delve in deeper and greater detail to what the Oka crisis in our Canadian history meant. Um, so you can find a link to Dio's sister Winique's CBC interview from 2015 on the episode webpage, as well as some other links on the Oka crisis. That's on www.womenonscreen.ca slash loud. And we encourage you all to educate your own selves further on this. Dio. We can sense that this piece of writing brought up a lot for you in your journey through PTSD. So I want to start this interview by opening the studio floor to you right now and ask, is there anything specific that you want to say further on why you decided to share this uh, today on this platform um, about the experience of writing it or how it feels to have just recorded it? Um, <laughs> thank you for having me. I think... I mean, there was a there was a first draft, as we all know, or as we we know, and it was very long, and it was sort of. I mean, I guess I kind of realized, or I forget until I'm in front of the computer, until I'm actually typing and approaching a essay or something like this. Um, it's always a journey, right? And so it started with just when I decided to become an actress and how I decided. And then I went through all the ways in which I, um, you know, was exposed to film and television and my relationship with that. And it was kind of like a trip down memory lane in a way. And then it ended up getting to this point where what really hurt me, and like I, I noticed the thing that kept popping up or keeps popping up and will always pop up and I'm just getting used to it or I'm used to it and I'm just, accepting that that's the way that it's going to be is my relationship with this photograph and this event that happened in my life and and you know all of my family and friends back home basically um it felt good it felt right it felt like the people that I would want to share this with it felt safe it feels like 
yeah, like the the women, like the female community. I love I love the film community, you know, so much. I love the the bad badass chicks in this community, and I feel like we're all so supportive with each other that, you know, I kind of felt good about sharing it here, and I felt like people would be understanding and. I think I kind of also wanted to share it because I just want people to know, you know, like we all have a story and I, that's part of my story and maybe it will give people a little bit of understanding into who I am. And I also wanted to share it because I want people to understand that this isn't something that, you know, that you read about and it happened to our parents or to our you know, in the 1800s or the 1700s or 1970s or six, this happened in my lifetime to me. And so that's why I put, you know, at the, at the end of my, my second draft, <laughs> I put, you know, Tannis on Letterkenny and, you know, Dorothy on Supernatural because, you know, this happened to that person that you're watching, you know, maybe it'll give a little bit more depth into who I am and, and yeah, so it felt good. It's, it brings up for me that the, um, the lest we forget that it's so important. We, we think stuff that happened so far in the past has no relevance sometimes on the present, and it really does. Oh, yeah, for sure. It really does. Um, you even talk about, uh, I think it was in a previous draft. I'm trying to remember if you put in this, well, uh, let's... Say in your initial draft, mm-hmm. you did talk about falling in love with Turner Classic Movies, and and uh, for the people listening, we're going to talk a lot about what she wrote in yeah, the beginning sorry. of her initial draft, <laughs> um, which was really cool, and and talking about growing up and and your experience um, on the reserve and and in your home and um, the various things that you saw on TV that inspired you to want to do what you do, and one of the things you talk about is. Uh, you're falling in love with Turner Classic Movies, and I want to bring this up now because of what you just spoke to about knowing that it's it's recent and connecting with the past, even the more recent past, to make sense of the present. Because you did write, I've always been obsessed with past and history, trying to make make sense of the present. And again, that's that feeling of not forgetting and not forgetting in order to live with ethical dignity in the present. Um, That's and a good makes way of putting it. yeah, and makes <laughs> sense of why things are the way they are and how they've come to pass because mm. it's so easy to dismiss. Can you speak more to that? How how for you uh, this idea of watching a, a movie or sharing this story uh, in terms of the Turner Classic movie? Mm. You said it was the idea that your uh, ancestors had watched these movies before. Yeah, like I just I used to love like watching I Love Lucy because I think maybe my mom mentioned it a couple times that, oh, she loved Lucille Ball and she loved, you know, so my thing about watching that or watching the old movies and stuff was like just imagining myself as, imagining me being my mom when she was whatever, 14, 15, getting a kick out of these, you know, I just it puts yourself in the, the headspace of like what they thought was funny or what they think is funny and I don't know, it was just a... Uh, I guess it's um, trying to put yourself in the shoes of the people who might have been consuming that content, if that makes sense. 
you've also gone really in depth with your mom <laughs> with your um, the podcast Coffee with My Mom. Go mm-hmm. listen to it; it's so fantastic. I, I feel Jen and I were saying that we feel like we gotten to know your mom yeah. through listening. <laughs> I to get it. that a lot, <laughs> and it's so beautiful when someone opens up their life in this way. Can you talk a bit more about your podcast? for those uh, who are listening, so they can go check it out. Yeah, so um, I guess part of my journey of storytelling and stuff and taking taking charge of my own story and my own, I guess, family story um, was my foray into podcasting, and I got really into true crime podcasts, and then um, I decided I'm going to make my own podcast, and the, the person who gave me all of the material is my mother. And so it's just myself and my mother sitting down talking over coffee in the morning, usually, <laughs> or if I wake up late, who knows. Um, but yeah, and it's, she's been, she's taught me to be really open, I guess. I mean, there's obviously some things that we keep within the family and everything, but for the most part, I mean, the way that I've been taught to navigate through the world is through the stories that my both my parents have told me, both my mother and my father. My dad... He doesn't tell the he doesn't tell stories in the same way that my mother does, but my dad will like often give these like really profound statements every once in a while, like where you're like, oh my god, daddy, wow, you know, like one, last year I was like, daddy, I'm like really depressed. I think like I'm like I can't get out of bed. I've been sleeping for like seven days straight, and and he was just like, well, sometimes when we are depressed, it is a moment for us to reflect on the things that may need changing in our lives. I was like, damn, daddy. (laughs) I know. And I was like, yeah, of course. Um, So I don't know. I have this, this, I guess, relationship with both my parents, one that I've been able to capture on, on audio, I guess, with, um, with my mother, luckily. And uh, I just have this, I guess, sort of urgency about wanting to, about wanting to, capture these stories you know I have my mother but there's so many other people that need to I just wanted to encourage people to go and talk to people just go talk go listen to stories because that's the only way that you know we can learn from their mistakes or you know we can feel we can also learn something about ourselves because like when you start talking to your parents or to your cousins or to your relatives or to your people or to whatever somebody that you share something with you learn something about yourself you know um a number of years ago, my grandfather was dying of cancer, and about a month before he died, I was on the phone with him on a Skype call. And uh, I went to get off the phone, and suddenly he yelled out. He was very, like, uh, small at that point because of his illness. And he yelled out. He goes, Laura! And I was like, oh, but, yep, Mm-mm. Grandpa, you got something to say to me? <laughs> and this is what he said. Have a good memory now. And really make sure you catch that memory so that you feel it in your heart. And then I just he got goosebumps. And then he went away, uh, like went got off the phone, mm-hmm. and he passed away a month later. And I, I was making an IKEA furniture at the time, and I wrote it down somewhere, and now it's in a frame um, on the back of an IKEA sheet mm-hmm. that I put. But it's something about that idea for me that you just spoke to of making sure that the memories that we have, that the past that we have, that we truly feel it, mm-hmm. that we don't just hear what things were, hear someone's story, that we really take it in our own stories too and feel it in our hearts yeah. in order to share um, 
going a bit more into your past, I, I'd love to hear more about you growing up. And I know you've mentioned that uh, Jim Carrey was <laughs> the actor that inspired you to be an actor. What was it about Jim and his work? Um, well, I was the, I am the youngest of six sisters and um, just of this like kind of crazy mixed family. And I bounced around a lot. And I think I just, as much as I slinked in and slinked away from, like I slinked into the corners and, you know, just observed a lot. I also loved to make everybody laugh when I did get the attention, when I was comfortable enough. I liked to, I loved to make my sisters laugh and my mom laugh, my dad laugh and have that as, you know, as our interaction. Um, and I think I didn't really, I wasn't really encouraged, not because of anybody's fault, but like, you know, my parents weren't really involved in arts in any way, like as a profession. My mom is actually an awesome painter and my dad can write like really, really well. He writes all the time. Um, but he, you know, because of whatever, they ended up doing what they did. Um, so I never really had any encouragement to go into the arts as a professional. And so seeing Jim Carrey as a 10-year-old on screen, I was like, oh my gosh, okay, so this guy can make a living by doing, by being like ridiculous and making people laugh. And it, for the first time it clicked in my mind that it was a profession. So then I immediately became obsessed with him, doing impersonations of him and like watching The Mask over and over and over again. I could quote it still. Um, there's so many ways in which he inspired me, I guess. And you know, like one thing with acting that I, I remember I kind of like took to heart was like, don't be afraid to ugly cry. Don't be afraid to look yeah. like an idiot. Claire right? Danes it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like that was like very freeing because he was my, it wasn't this person. I didn't get obsessed with like this, you know, beautiful I don't know, whatever, bombshell or something that I had decided I had to live up to. I kind of like had the, I, I was obsessed with this guy, this thing that made an ass of himself. And it kind of was like freeing and safe and in a way, do you know what I mean? Like for me to push the boundaries and to be an idiot, I think. But then it was kind of interesting because I always was, you know, I, I got into theater school because I, I really wanted to do comedy that was my thing right and well not my thing it's not like I was doing I, but I was 16 when I got into theater school so I was like I just like making making people laugh and then you know the more I went through theater school the th over the three years I discovered acting I discovered drama I discovered you know embodying a character I discovered all of that stuff and that was like wow when I had this one teacher say you know you you have great comedic timing and that's not something that you can be taught. So, you know, cherish that. And and every time I kind of get down on myself or whatever, you know, there's like a few quotes that you can, there's a few quotes through my life that I keep in my back pocket. And I, when I'm feeling like shit, I remember the, I take them out and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I got that, you know? And, um, and yeah, so I think it was, uh, it was kind of interesting how I figured out the balance of like comedy and drama in theater school and then like a lot of my career in the beginning, you know, 
And then I was like, I'm fucking hilarious. How come I never get <laughs> cast as like a, a – and then I got so Letterkenny. <laughs> <laughs> Where you finally get to be like, yeah. I am going to Jim Carrey this. Yeah. Were there other influences in your life growing up that you also gravitated towards? Um, specifically, I know you said when you did the docudrama when you were um, – how old were you again? Uh, 19? Yeah, 19. Um, that there were other Indigenous actors there that you had watched growing up. Um, mm-hmm. So speaking to representations come a long way, but certainly growing up there were very, because um, you and I I think are about the same age, yeah. very few Indigenous characters in mainstream media. Oh my God, yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, what are any other people that inspired you growing up? Yeah, well, he wasn't actually in uh, the Oka Crisis movie for CBC, but one of like my the people that I love uh, was is is Graham Greene, and he did this movie called Clear Cut, and we used to rent it all the time from the the uh, rental place in Kahnawake, and. I would watch it over and over and over again. And it's actually a, a movie based on a book, and it's all shot in Ontario. It's like it's from like 1990 or something or 89 maybe. And like you see people are like, oh, my gosh, it's that person. Or like you see who cast it. And it's like all very familiar names. I think it was like cast here in Toronto or something. And it's this um, – he plays a character where he's like this trickster and – he it was really cool because you could see him like looking back on it like I've watched it again um since I was a kid and also it's very twisted it's a very twisted movie like when I met Graham and I was like I love the clear cut I grew up watching it he was like whoa okay that's weird <laughs> I was like what oh yeah okay I guess that's a bit weird but um he yeah it's like really twisted but looking back I can see that he I think it was one of the first or one of the only were very few roles where he wasn't playing a native, an Indian riding a horse with feathers in his hair. And like, you know, he wasn't playing that image, you know. He was, he had this freedom to like basically do whatever you want, you know. And you can see it. Like only looking back now, am I, did I realize that? Like I watched it, I think maybe like five months ago and I was like, wow, like he is so underrated in this movie. This is like this movie that he completely, really shines in and yeah you can just see him having fun and uh he's one person and that role especially is is one that really like i i yeah obsessed over that one it's interesting as you talk about that it makes me think of how you were feeling about jim carrey this idea of this person who goes you're not gonna put me in a box yeah exactly i'm gonna push those boundaries yeah 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 and i'm gonna do it well yeah and i'm gonna enjoy doing it yeah exactly (laughs) So I, I want to come back to uh, kind of the your your piece because um, you wrote. There's a phrase that Jen and I were like, "Ooh, ooh struck us in the gut." Where you said everyone's trying to get their piece of the anniversary pie. It's got to be so complex um, to love deeply what you do and also have it so deeply affect your emotional well-being and your experience with both the docudrama, as you said, you don't think you necessarily realized at 19 what it was, mm-hmm. uh, what you were doing recreating this, um, and how it affected you, and this documentary. It's it's so tricky. Um, is there, I guess the question is, is there anything that you would say to non-Indigenous filmmakers who are interested in collaborating with Indigenous peoples or who would even approach you to support your storytelling? What, what 
it's uh, what ideally would that look like for you? Yeah, it's interesting because it's all like everything's connected. It's so odd. But um, I just decided to I just shot a documentary actually in Kahnawake two weeks ago. And it's it's a documentary following me piecing together a story about my grandfather who in 1932 faked his death on a train bridge uh, outside of Kahnawake and ran away and joined the circus for two years. What? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So me and another girl from Kahnawake who is a documentary filmmaker, uh, we'd known, we've known each other since we were kids, but we never paired up. And so we decided to pair up on this and we got a grant. And... Part of the documentary was inviting family members to have dinner at my mom's house. And we had a nice catered dinner. I hired my cousin as, like, makeup just to make sure that they weren't shiny, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and just to make sure they knew somebody was making sure they looked good on camera. Um, and we documented the whole dinner. And I realized, like, I think I was – I think be, I think the thing that happened to me with that documentary – and not being consulted. And I think it impacted me so much in the way that I've decided to tell stories because it needs to be an inclusive thing. We're such a connected, I'm talking about Indigenous people at least, like, and then I'll elaborate on how, if you want to mm-hmm. make or whatever. Anyway, so I think we're all connected, right? And me telling the story of my grandfather and his nephew, it's not just me, my mom and her dad, you know, who are affected by this story, it it trickles out. We're, you know, I have so many cousins who have heard this story who are excited about me telling it. I have some people who are telling me that I'm wrong. And there's some people, you know, and so, but the fact that I made an effort, I think was really important to me to sit and get their approval, to get the extended family's approval. That was Honestly, like, yes, I wanted to get all of the the truth of the story because that's what the initial gathering was for. But for me, it was just I wanted them, I wanted their encouragement and I wanted their support. And, you know, we are such, we joke about how small, we call it Indian country, right? We joke about how small it is because it's really small. Like, it's really small. Like, the I'm doing this thing, Canada Reads, and the author that I happened to pick, her sister used to live at my aunt's house in the 90s, like that small, you know? So like, it's very, the fact that this person made this documentary and included this very intense moment in my life and I didn't know if they thought I wasn't gonna see it or something, but come on, it's Canada. You know, regardless if this is indigenous or not, you know, we're such a small country just do the, you know, I don't, I'm, obviously there's no, like, I don't know what journalistic, you know, r- rules there are or anything, but there weren't that many people involved in the blockade and the Oka crisis. And if you're going to single out some of us, just have the tact to say something or, you know what I mean? Like, it was... Um, so I think as a non-Indigenous person, I think collaborate collaborate don't because for me the reason why I'm getting so um I want to I want to take charge and tell my own story is because it's frequent it's always this 
outside entity coming in and you feel like you're a freak. Like talking about my story, you feel very in a way and not in this setting at all, which is mm. why I chose to share it with you. Um, but you often feel like, oh my, like it's almost patronizing or like, I don't know how to, like what the word is, but like you looked at like a freak, you know? But then when it's me choosing to tell us when my sister's story because I have the means to do it, it's a collaboration mm-hmm. it, rather than a poaching of, and not necessarily, not that some, not that people have the, you know, not that they're coming to poach stories or anything, like, because there's always good intentions, but I'm telling you how it feels mm-hmm. when somebody's coming to try and tell your story. And a story, especially a story like that, is it feels like you're put on display like a freak. And as much as you can try and explain yourself and try and explain the story as best as you can, they still will never get it. And so when you're telling the story, like when I'm telling my family's story, it's they get why I'm trying to do this and they want to help in the process of telling it, right? So I think that if a non-Indigenous person wants to help tell an Indigenous story, collaborate. Just collaborate. Like I'm not, like I want my story editor for, because we're writing a feature, right, on on my grandfather's story. Like I, I like it's not an, an Indigenous person who I have as a story editor, you know, and that's like my sense of collaboration. And I, I know so many amazing people in this industry. I feel so grateful for all of the people that I know. And I would never just be like, no. <laughs> I'm like, no, I want all your knowledge. I want to <laughs> yeah. know. I want to collaborate. So, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, totally. Um, someone was saying to me, you know, the gatekeepers, uh, I can identify just as being a woman, the gatekeepers don't always look like us, but sometimes they are still the gatekeepers. So encouraging them to be as collaborative as possible is... Yeah, exactly. I feel like the most, the closest... I think I decided to tell this and talk about this with you because you're women. Mm-hmm. Because I can talk about these things without, you know, like you might not be Indigenous, but we're still women. Mm-hmm. And we still have that thing. <laughs> that, so, that only if yeah. we can, if we yeah, talk yeah. about something that we will only get it. You can explain yeah. it to a man until you're blue in the face, but they will never get it. But if you explain certain things to another woman and talk about certain things... Mm-hmm. Only, and it's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, an empathy. Mm-hmm. There's a great deal of empathy, compassion. Um, I love, too, when you're talking about the community being so important. Um, and I just want to circle back to something you said there, because I'm curious about what you meant by it. Like, even people in your community not agreeing with you telling your grandfather's story. Is that what you meant there? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you navigate that? I mean, we gave them the open invite to come and talk about on you know, why why we shouldn't be talking about this or why we're wrong or mm. what points we have wrong, but they, you know, they don't want to. And I just, you know, I think it's a clash of the older generation not wanting to talk about things and share things and the younger generation and us just wanting to talk about things. Mm. We That's our, that's our generation is we're like, I want to heal. I want to, I want to know. Stop not talking about it. You know, it helps us so we can move forward. You know, they're not doing us any favors by holding their tongues. Mm. And not just in, in the Indigenous community. I'm talking oh, no, about all older people. Like, yeah. we, if we come and ask you, it's for a reason. Not because we want to, ha- like, make you rehash your awful history that, you you know, you've endured. Just do us the solid and give us some info so that we can have some 
knowledge and ammo for when we for us heading out into the future. What's talking again about the need to know the past in order to understand the present. Yeah, exactly. And as you just said, which is, uh, to heal, mm-hmm. to heal. Mm-hmm. I really want to thank you, and uh, Jen and I really want to thank you, and Women on Screen really wants to thank you for not only using your voice and talents to represent such incredible characters, which we didn't even touch on, (laughs) in the myriad of film and TV, uh, your already impressive career, but also, and I think more importantly, that you are in the captain's chair now, and you are giving voice to your own story and to your community, and I'm, I'm really excited to hear these stories from you and to see what you do. If you could say, well, you can say more than one thing, of course, (laughs) but what you're most excited for, you've touched on it a lot, but about being in the captain's chair, what would that be for you? Um, I think I'm, I'm excited to explore this new side of storytelling that I'm embarking on. Like, the documentary was intense to make, but then... After we finished that, I sat down with Roxanne, my my producing partner, writing partner, and she and I kind of just riffed off of each other about the story and making things, you know, like, I'm just excited about that aspect of creating, you know, I create, I get to create characters and stuff on my, on in our work, you know, as actresses, but then being in this whole other side, the writing and I'm, I'm, that's what I'm excited about. You just spoke again to collaboration. Yeah, collaboration. Really, really beautiful. Um, Theo, thank you so much. Can't thank you enough for coming in today and talking with us and uh, reading your story out loud. Thank you for having me. I really, really enjoyed my time here. And And thank you for making a safe space for me to share. Dio Horn is a Canadian actress from Ganawage, the Mohawk Reserve outside Montreal. Since graduating from Dawson's College Professional Theatre Program in 2005, she has established herself as a versatile actress with roles on television including the multiple award-winning comedy Letterkenny, Amazon's Man in the High Castle, Hemlock Grove for Netflix, and the CBC legal drama Digstown. Her feature credits include Immortals, On the Road, Death Wish, and The Hummingbird Project. In 2018, she launched the podcast Coffee with My Ma, sharing the adventures and experiences of her activist mother. Most recently, Dio co-hosted the 2019 Inspire Awards on CBC, recognizing the outstanding achievements of individuals within Canada's Indigenous community. Thank you, Dio, for joining us at Deluxe Toronto. Be sure to check out future episodes of Women on Screen Out Loud wherever you get your podcasts, and check out upcoming events and initiatives from Women on Screen at womenonscreen.ca. Until next time, I'm Lara Jean Korostecki. And I'm Jennifer Pogue. And we are Women Women on on Screen. Women on Screen Out Loud was recorded at Deluxe Toronto. This podcast was created and produced by Lara Jean Korostecki and Jennifer Pogue, executive produced by Lauren McKinley, Farah Morani, and Kira Murphy, with original music by Erica Percunier. Thank you to Deluxe Toronto for hosting us and for continuing to support Women on Screen.